And I said, what, what if I were to do something? I was like, you know, there's room. I think there's room on every summit for a tent at least, or we could figure out how to put a tent up on every one. And I said, that'd be a really cool project. Like I could go out and do them all. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 233, John Kodrowski talks about climbing and camping on all of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks. Happy New Year's, ASP listeners. We are back. We hope you all had a great holiday season. I know Kurt and I did. The relaxation and time spent with our families was a nice break. Thanks for hanging in there and listening to our holiday flashbacks while we were away. We didn't just sit around doing nothing, though. I can't say anything else about it just yet, but in the near future, we'll let you all in on it. Until then, enjoy a brand new episode with John Kodrowski and his stories about camping on every one of Colorado's 14ers. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Today on the line with me is John Kodrowski. John is a Colorado native. He's a PhD in environmental geography. He stood on the summit of Everest and skied 20 volcanoes in the, in the Cascades in 30 days. He's also summited all 55 Colorado 14ers, but even better, he went back and did them all over again, but this time he camped at the top of each one. Uh, John wrote a book about this. It's called Sleeping on the Summits, Colorado 14ers High Bivvies. He's also written uh, another book that we'll talk about. But before we get into all that, John, I want to welcome you to the show. Hey, Travis. What's happening? Nice to be here. Not much, man. We're uh, enjoying this beautiful Colorado weather. It's uh, abnormally warm, but I guess I'll take it. I'm not complaining. Yeah, it's still fall. Actually, I was up on uh, Mount Albert this morning, went up for a trail run and uh climbed to the summit and uh with this with super moon this morning early and oh, then nice. came back down so yeah we need some snow there's no snow up there at all hardly except on some north facing slopes that's the thing yeah i say i'm not complaining it is nice but yeah it's a little it's getting a little bit late in the season to uh to not have snow up there so maybe a little turn on us here pretty soon Okay, so like I alluded, um, you're a Colorado native, so let's jump into that a little bit and how you grew up and what your history was. So I understand you were born in Vail, right? Yeah, so I grew up here and uh, my parents moved out in the late 70s and bought some lots with like all the money they had and then they decided to stay and I grew up working on my dad's job sites, skiing as much as I could. I've been on skis since I was two years old and then uh, from there I kind of got into the mountains as well not just going to the resort but going uh climbing peaks and I was up on my first 14er when I was eight years old and when I saw that all the other 14ers off in the distance I already knew at that age that I want to try to climb those but then you naturally learn in school when you're like you know first or second grade everybody learns what the highest mountain in the world is at that age and I was sitting at Red Sandstone Elementary School and I learned that the highest mountain was Mount Everest and Right away, I knew that someday I'd climb it. So you had that goal set from uh, from early on where you're just a little kid. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and I was kind of different than the others in my class. I mean, I had uh, two or three other Olympians, that uh, people that ended up skiing 
um, in the Olympics, Toby Dawson, who won the bronze medal in the 2006 Torino Olympics, and then Sarah Schlepper, who skied in four Olympics. They were in my same elementary school class, but I was, was kind of felt I was even different than them. You know, I could still go out and ski, I, but then I just developed this love for climbing peaks and then also using those mountains once I got into high school for training for other sports. And so I actually played college basketball at a Division One school out in out in Indiana called Valparaiso University, and I found that if I was training on the mountains all summer and I went to my my practices in the fall, that I'd I'd become really fit from being on the peaks all summer, and then I would be able to compete with guys that were bigger than me and faster than me. Yeah, no doubt you can't uh, beat that kind of workout. You get used to climbing high peaks up in the in the altitude like that, and you're going to be able to compete well <laughs> pretty much anywhere you go at that point. Oh yeah. So you had set out to. Uh, I I should ask, I guess you know you climbed all fifteen fourteeners. Was it something that you had set out to do, or was it just kind of like, well, you know, I've climbed a few. I'm just going to keep doing it because I love it. And eventually, you got to the point where you bagged them all. Yeah, um, when I was in. Uh... High school, I started doing more, and I, I got my learner's permit when I was 15, and my parents basically just gave me the car, and they were like, you can go go do whatever you want. Go to the trailheads. And I got my first – the first edition Roach's 14-year's guidebook in 94, and that guidebook only would say, all right, you know, here's the, how you get to the trailhead. All right, go up the, go up the valley, follow this trail to the tree line, and then see you on the summit. So, like, it wasn't really that great of a guidebook. <laughs> You know, and back then there was maybe trails on half of the 14ers, so you'd have to go out and explore. And I feel like I've always kind of been an, an explorer and somebody that, you know, I think about the early surveyors in like the 1800s and people that would climb those peaks first. And I kind of felt that way as a young teenager. And I used the first two summers in high school to basically go out and climb almost every 14er. And I ended up finishing the 14ers before I turned 18. And on some of the more difficult peaks, my mom would say, hey, you can't go by yourself, you know, take your brother, my little brother. And <laughs> my little brother was 13 at the time when we were on the knife edge on Capitol Peak. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> That's an accomplishment at that age. Yeah. And, the, and, you know, I think maybe it was just ignorance. We didn't really know what we were doing. So we were just up there climbing, you know, in cotton T-shirts and jeans sometimes or sweatpants, you know, sports gear. Um, but we found out if we were training like that, we'd get back to two days in football and be able to just really – really run like crazy and then i would take the dog too i had a german shepherd and she went on about 20 of the peaks with me um in like the summer of 95 96 that or that both those summers and um yeah i just i kind of uh would just go out and, and found the adventure in, in the mountains yeah that's cool so give me a good story about about one of those i mean 55 14 000 foot peaks have to um give way to some good stories. So what was kind of your, your best memorable moment up there? Well, I think early on when I was growing up, it was like I said, going with my little brother. And I remember climbing up North Maroon, you know, and I'm 15, my brother's 13 and, and we had no idea where the route went and we just had to figure out and we were climbing up these ledges and, you know, there was no trails, no routes, no cairns. And, um, just the, the zest to explore was really fun, but I remember going up a section where now I know, like having been up there so many times and I've even skied off of North Maroon, but the, the route goes through some of these gullies and you have to find your way on ledges. And in one particular instance, instead of 
taken a, a certain ledge to get us into the main goalie. We went up a different goalie and we ended up having to climb up about a hundred foot cliff free solo without ropes, without any gear. And I remember going up and kind of leading the pitch without anything. And my brother just sort of saying, Hey, be careful. And I got, and then I found my way up to the top of it and said, Hey, you can climb this. And he's like, all right. And I remember him climbing the last little section and me sort of leaning and holding onto a rock as like a, on a ledge to like give myself stability and then reaching my hand out and grabbing his hand right before he slipped and pulling him up on the ledge with me. Oh man. <laughs> I just remember, and we're like, all right, well, we got to find a different way down when we come back down and we were able to find the right goalie to come down um, to safely make it down. But yeah, I just remember little moments like that. And every once in a while I reminisce about that with my brother, like, holy crap, do you remember when, you know, we did this or <laughs> when we were walking across the knife edge or, you know, do a those, lot of good memories. Do those stories kids. ever make it back to your mom? Oh yeah. Yeah. But I think she still is kind of like, you know, doesn't really know exactly. I mean, she, uh, my mom's in her mid sixties now and see two years ago when she turned 62, we went up Mount of the Holy Cross, me and her, and she did it in about four hours up. Nice. So she did quick. Um, so I was like, I think that's where I get my energy from both my mom and my dad. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. So you're talking about um, Maroon, and we have listeners from all over the world. So basically what you're talking about is uh, is back the Maroon Bells back behind Aspen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Maroon Bells are, in my opinion, some of the probably two most gorgeous mountains in the world. And you can travel to other parts of the world and see pictures of the Maroon Bells sometimes hung up in people's cabins or lodges, stuff like that. Um, and that, you know, those peaks are amazing to climb. I sort of developed a new relationship with the 14ers this particular year, this past year, because I, I actually went back again, which I, you know, somehow the mountains keep drawing me in, but they're so close to home, you know, and so they're good, a good training ground. But I went back this past spring and went out and did an, another project where I skied every 14er from January to June. And that included doing the Maroon Bells again. And I actually hadn't skied North Maroon, and that was really special this time. So now when I look at that peak, it just doesn't doesn't look the same anymore. Yeah, I'll bet. It's such a an iconic view, like you said. You find it uh, hung up in people's houses all over the place. It's such a, an absolutely gorgeous area. So you're lucky to to be able to to go up there. It's just about in your backyard, so it's cool. Yeah, to get there quick is great. And the, the Elk Range is my favorite range, probably because of various – geology and the scenery you know you have the kind of red rugged and rotten uh, sedimentary mudstone of the maroon bells and pyramid and then you kind of transition to the granite white granite um, igneous rock further north with the snowmass 14er and the capital peak and so you get this contrast of the rocks and the geology and that makes them you know just look different and even climb different right I imagine that's fascinated you, you know, since early on. You ended up uh, uh, becoming a, a PhD in environmental geography. It must have just being up there constantly as a kid must have just fascinated you to the point where where you decided this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, and I figured, you know, the tie into weather and climate, and then the geology, rocks and minerals, and all those aspects play out in this in both of these books. Um, telling the story of the 14ers, not only from the climbing side and how difficult it was to camp on every summit, you know, in one summer, but also I'm fascinated by weather and climate. And a lot of my coursework as a PhD was 
um, climatology and and meteorology and stuff like that. And so, yeah, going up there, you know, and trying to understand weather phenomenon and see it happen it allows you to learn more about a lot of things with the weather and general trends and how to even cloud watch and understand, you know, when a front's coming through, what what it's actually doing and what's happening and stuff like that. So, yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah, unlike the rest of us who just uh, we know we have to get down off the mountain before the the mid afternoon thunderstorm <laughs> comes up, you're you're just looking at it, you know, trying to study the thing the whole time. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> watch and learn, kind of, you know. All right, so let's talk about um, let's talk about your decision to go back out and and do all of the fourteeners and and actually camp on the top. I mean, that's no small feat. One, to do the 14ers, to do all of them, uh, you know, from the get-go is, that's a, a big feat. But then to decide to go back and do them all and try to camp on them, what kicked off this whole idea in the first place? Well, um, it kind of started in two different ways. One, and this is good because I could tell the story behind it. The The first was that back in about, 2002 or so I was back one summer in between my junior and senior year of college and I had a friend of mine who was in the in the Marines and he just had gotten done serving and he came back and he said hey he goes you know the weather looks good tonight stars are out I want to take my telescope up on Mount Albert and let's spend the night up there and I was kind of at the moment like oh I've never done that before that'd be kind of cool you know we catch the sunrise and all that and so we went up and hiked up Mount Albert in the in the dark. And one of the rules was we were not allowed we weren't allowed to use headlamps because he's like, well, when we're in the military, we don't use headlamps and in the dark, we got to find our way around. So you had to figure out how to make yourself go up the trail without either falling off the trail or different things like that. And eventually, we made our way up, and it was a really beautiful starry night. And we slept out in the open, no wind, kind of in a, one of those little rock shelters on the summit. And we got a little bit of a headache that night, but it wasn't too bad. It was actually really awesome in the morning when the sun rose and you got that amazing color in the belt of Venus and the lighting and everything. And and I thought, man, this is really cool. And then around 2005 or so, I began climbing peaks on other continents and other mountain ranges, whether you're in Europe, Africa, South America, basically all every other continent has higher mountains with the exception of Alaska, but it has higher mountains than the lower 48 here, you know, basically the United States, North America. And so I found that if I went up and camped on summits for a couple days in, in a row or at various times, um, I kind of, I kind of found that it would help me sort of pre-acclimate my body for going to higher mountains in other continents. And it jump-started that process of, you know, producing red blood cells and things like that. And so I started to camp up on different summits all the time before I would leave on trips in 2005. I went to Elbrus and climbed one of the seven summits in Russia. 2006, I did an expedition to the Palmyres in, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and kind of the list goes on from there with my career. So, yeah, I kind of, you know, figured out that doing that would lead to that. And then... Before I went to Denali in 2009, kind of had a landmark moment where my good friend Chris Tomer, who's a meteorologist, and we went to college together, and he's a meteorologist for Fox and Channel 2 here in Denver. We went up on Mount Albert and spent the night in March, basically in the winter before spring started, and it was cold. It was minus 20, and it was blowing 50 miles an hour, and we were hunkered down in a, in a north-face tent, and it was horrible. 
I mean, it was so cold, but, but then again, that was good preparation. We, we got up to the summit, maybe three in the afternoon, sun was going down around six. We had time, only enough time to chop out a good tent platform and try to put up some walls in the snow. And kind of what I found from that too, was like, that was very much like being on a real expedition to a big peak, like in Pakistan or the Himalayas where when you're putting camps and you got to chop out tent platforms and you got to, you know, melt snow for water and you got to prepare and freeze your butt off in the process. And so <laughs> all that stuff kind of came together. And that night I remember it was blowing so hard. We, one of the tent poles snapped in the tent. And as we were laying there, I sort of joked around and said, well, you know, Chris, so far I've, I've actually camped on about 15 of these summits. And I said, what, what if I were to do something? I was like, you know, there's room. I think there's room on every summit for a tent at least, or we could figure out how to put a tent up on every one. And I said, that'd be a really cool project. Like I could go out and do them all and maybe write a book about it. And I just was kind of, you know, we were both kind of in a haze because of the altitude. And, and he sort of laughed at me that night and said, well, are you kidding me? It'd be windy like this all the time. And he goes, he goes, when, when would you be able to do this too? He's like, you'd have to lose your job or you'd have to, you know, find time to do it. And so then that was 2009. And right after that, I ended up going to Denali and climbing and then doing some other things. And then I finished my doctorate in 2010 and got my first job as a professor in Central Washington University. So the idea was still kind of there. Um, and I just didn't quite know when I would go out and do it. And, uh, so then the opportunity did finally come. So, yeah, so, um, we had the idea kind of back then. And then, uh, I did my first two years of teaching. And before I, um, after my first year as a professor in the department of geography at central Washington university, I got called into my boss's office at the end of that school year in, uh, basically in end of May. And my boss says to me, Hey, I got some good news and some bad news. I was like, all right, well, he's like, all right, well, the good news is you did an amazing job this year. You got great reviews. The bad news is, is that we're cutting the funding for your position. So I was out of a job. Oh, man. <laughs> so I call up Chris on the phone. I said, Hey, guess what? I don't have a job. I'm going to come back out to Colorado for the summer, come home to Vail, and I'm going to go out and try this project. I'm going to try to camp on every summit. And so that's when the Sleeping on the Summits was born. And I started on June 23rd of that year. That was 2011. And in 95 days, I was able to go up and camp on every single summit. And at times, Chris would join me. You know, he had the real job. He was in his weather center. And that's what's neat about the book is it sort of not only tells the story of me going up and trying to, you know, face adversity and fail a lot and get struck by lightning and get chased by storms, but it also kind of accounts for the weather and then our communication. Cause sometimes, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd be on summits three, four nights in a row. And Chris had the real job, but he would be assisting me by sending me text messages. We communicate about the weather. You know, sometimes I'd be up on a summit and I'd, I'd, I'd see a storm coming and I'd say, all right, Chris, well, you know, I can remember even a few years ago, the cell phone coverage to be able to pull up radar up on peaks wasn't that easy. But I was able to communicate with him somewhat and say, all right, Chris, I see this storm coming. What do you see on radar? Is it going to hit me? Can I stay here? What do you think? And he'd, he'd give me his best judgment. And I'd have to trust his judgment and sometimes make the call to get out of the way or sometimes just hunker down and stay there. And that was kind of the ultimate friendship, partnership. You know, I, I do a lot of talks to corporate world about trusting and business aspects and different things. And so I, I weave these stories into it. Uh, that's cool. What a, what a partner to have. And I'm sure, you know, Chris was able to uh, enjoy helping you out even on the times when he couldn't come up and join you um, for him to, to be using his expertise for something like this must've been pretty fun for him as well. 
yeah and the and the and it was always like you know small goals like one peak at a time and you know i'd get up in the morning and basically come down from a peak come to my car at the trailhead eat a big breakfast you know i had had some burner stoves with me to cook a good meal and then pack my bag again and go back up the next night and uh you know, some weeks, like I said, it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four nights in a row. And on day five, Chris would show up Friday afternoon after he got off work and say, hey, you got one more in you. You know, you can do this. And that that really picked me up, too. And I, other people along the way, too, at times would come and meet up with me and just encourage me and push me through it. And, you know, these were small goals to get to a big goal. And, and in a couple different regards, doing Sleeping on the Summits was about even a bigger goal. And that was Everest. So I had signed on to go on an Everest expedition the following year in the spring. And this project ended up being 95 days, which is three months. And an Everest expedition is only two months. So mentally and even physically at times I was like, you know what, this might be harder than an Everest expedition because I was physically beating myself up every single day and still had energy to go another day. And I found later on Everest that that was the case, that at times sleeping on the summits was more difficult, even though Everest is higher and there's different challenges with that. Um, this was truly a way to prepare myself for that even bigger goal. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. You know what you should do? Get a book. That's right, a book. We place many of our guest authors in our ASP bookshelf so you guys have quick access to adventure inspiration. Yes, of course, we get a small percentage of the sale, but you get inspiration you deserve and we get a little support for the show. It's a win-win. Just click on the ASP bookshelf button at adventuresportspodcast.com. Sleeping on these summits, I mean, not all of these peaks are are roomy up top. I mean, that was the one thing that, that I was thinking about, you know, leading into this was, you know, you get up there. How in the heck do you find yourself a place to set up your tent and, you know, keep it safe and be able to sleep there all night without uh, without having the, 
you know, the niceties of a of dirt to be able to pound your stakes in and, and lack of wind. I mean, some of the weather up there can get crazy. Yeah, it came down to a lot of creative landscaping. So the first thing was at the time, this was sponsored by Sierra Designs, American Rec, and Kelty out of Boulder. And so we were testing out tents and pads and things like that. Um, and then that was kind of part of the fun was getting up there early enough to get the camp set up to arrange some rocks in a sort of a rock shelter windbreak, move some things around, fit the tent creatively. And then all that movement and hard work was, again, similar to like on a big expedition. You've got to create your own camp and chop things out and work maybe for one or two hours, and that can be exhausting, but that can prepare you. Um, so it was really about about that as well as, um, you know, getting up there and, and, and really, yeah, fitting in, fitting in the tent the best you could. And then – you know, sleeping actually wasn't that hard because it was by the time you got, you know, a few of these peaks in your body was acclimated to that height. And then you're so exhausted from coming up and, and pushing the limits and stuff like that, that you just sleep. Yeah. You didn't um, have a choice at that point. <laughs> yeah. So it just, it, and then, and then it was about getting the shots, like getting the shots that no one would normally get to see, you know, cause most, yeah, 99.9% .9 of the time you're up there at sunset and no one else is up there. You know, there was maybe one other peak where people came up that night for like the sunset, but then they left, you know, or there's different situations. But yeah, but it was really about getting the sunsets and the sunrises. And in some fashions in the book, a little bit of repeat photography and things like that. And um, and on a few of them, yeah, I could fit a tent. So I just slept out in the open and then, uh, you know, failed about 15 or 16 times where I got up there and the weather was moving in. I had to quickly get out of the way and go down and go back to tree line and wait and maybe come up the next day or, you know, pull the plug or, you know, there was a lot of different things that happened. And so kind of in the book, try to help tell those stories about the details and the intricacies of all that. Right. Well, I love that you say there's a few of them that you couldn't fit the tent, man. If you can't fit a tent <laughs> on a peak, I don't think I want to be sleeping up there. That would scare me. There's no way I could sleep all night. Yeah. And, and then uh, the one thing I wish I, I, could do is maybe do some portal ledges at some point that would, yeah. might be another idea for the future but but yeah it was it, it went fairly well i mean in a few occasions it was pretty uncomfortable you just had to make the most of it and uh most of the time it was wasn't so bad and <laughs> and then it was all about really like a couple nights you get pretty windy and then some nights it was just dead so dead calm and amazing and that was really what it was all about was trying to get those moments where it was just really a special experience Right. So is there, uh, is there a lot of that photography in the book, I assume? Yes. Uh, every single peak has got full on photography. And then there's also a box on meteorology that we did for each peak to dis discuss and describe trends in Colorado weather and various things to look for if you're out there on the peaks. And certain mountain ranges have different geometry and geology that that mix in with the weather and make the weather do certain things. And so we try to describe a lot of that in there. And then we also included actual text messages to our communications. So like if I was up on a peak and Chris was sending me messages, he'd give me like prevailing wind direction and things to look out for. And we just put that in there to add to the story. And then there's um, HD video from every single summit. So it goes with the reading. You can scan QR codes on your iPad or your smartphone, and it goes with the reading, so it makes it really interactive. And uh, kids love it. Adults love it. It's, it's been a really – it was a really fun book, and it's actually in its third printing now. So we, we really 
been fortunate to sell a lot of these books and people love the 14 er so I, I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. Oh yeah, I doubt it. Well, to remind people that are listening, the book is Sleeping on Summits, Colorado 14 er High Bivvies. Um, man, for anybody who, you know, wants to do, uh, some peaks in Colorado or, you know, coming in from other States, what a, what a great research tool for them. Cause they can, sounds like they can get a real good taste for, for each one of these peaks. Yeah. I mean, uh, we describe a little bit about the routes, you know, it's, I'd still recommend people getting a good guidebook for the 14ers if they're going to get started. But in the beginning, we include like a how-to guide on, you know, what to carry, things you might want to consider, and, and things of that nature. And and then kind of the neat thing I did with the new book, which I know we'll get to talking about it, but I added maps and stuff in a guidebook fashion to the new book about the Cascade Volcanoes because I want to kind of see how that would play out right. and stuff. So right. yeah, these books are kind of an evolution, and there will be a third trilogy book at some point that's along this theme, and I can't really tell anyone what it is just yet. <laughs> it's a secret but underway, huh? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, because the second book is a sequel. So during the 14ers Bivvies project, I spent some time on Mount Rainier. And I was up there spending the night at the Summit Creator. At the very end of the 14er High Bivvies book, I said, well, Mount Rainier's a 14er. And I was up there spending the night. And I thought, wow, there's these other peaks that you could go do and you could climb, and you could ski. And I kind of leave the door open at the end of sleeping on the summits, Colorado 14er High Bivvies. And then that opens the door for the volcanoes. Right on. Which two, yeah. Very cool. Well, I look forward to checking out the first two and awaiting the third. So let's talk about Everest then. Um, you were actually up there twice. You summited in 2012, and then you were back again. So tell me about the uh, the summit um, attempt and completion in 2012. Um, well, Mount Everest, of course, yeah, highest mountain in the world, and I had you know trained for it and. It was one of those things I, I always wanted to do, and I got an opportunity to go. And 2012 was an interesting year. You know, there was a lot of climbers there. The weather ended up being quite good once a bad storm happened. But Everest is unlike any mountain I've ever been on just because there's all walks of life there. And it's it, Everest at times equates to, you know, people's dreams, meaning, you know, there's going to be people from all walks of life that want to climb, whether they're doctors, lawyers, you know, school teachers or professional mountaineers. And so you, you go there and it's so commercialized that in some ways climbing, it was the easiest mountain I've ever been on. In other ways, it was really challenging. Um, a lot of it's because they, they fix the ropes for all the teams and they put camps in and things like that. Um, but uh, that being said, it, it's also still very difficult. And I think one of the biggest things about Everest, though, too, is that people are very impatient by human nature. And so um, if you look at the historical records for summiting Everest every year in the last 30 years, the best weather is always after May 20th, historically. And that's because the jet stream and the weather sort of changes and the, and the winds get knocked away from the summit for about a week and people can summit. But also when people go on a long expedition, they get impatient. And so if they think the weather's going to be reasonable, say you go up a few days before the 20th, you might get good enough weather to summit then you get your summit done and you get to go home so people will go for it and sometimes they'll go for it too early and that can cause problems up there yeah yeah it's interesting that you know, it's a bit of a dichotomy like you said there you know the the trips are guided and you're on ropes and you have sherpa to help you um yet it can be 
Everest, you know, can be a nasty place when it wants to be and completely turn people's lives upside down. Yeah. And so, uh, we went through our climatization for about a month there. You trek into base camp, which is an incredible experience. I've led and guided treks to the, just the base camp, which is at 17,000 feet. And that's half of the amount of oxygen you have at sea level. So when you get to base camp, you're a little bit lightheaded, you know, but you rest for a few days and then you begin the process of going up and down the mountain on rotations for about a month to get your body adjusted to really high altitude and thin air. And, uh, so after the process goes from about the middle to end of April and into early May, you take about a week off to rest. And some people go down to lower villages and recover. And then you're basically waiting for the jet stream to die off the summit. And in my particular season in 2012, about 300 climbers decided to start going up around the 18th of May, actually going up about the 16th to try to summit on the 18th and 19th. And we knew that our team, we had about eight members and, our team was a lower budgeted expedition, meaning like you could hire the, the services that you needed. So, you know, at the time I couldn't afford that much. So I hired like a cook, the cook and base camp to provide meals in base camp. I could not afford a personal Sherpa for an extra $20,000. So I did not <laughs> have a personal Sherpa, but I ended up meeting some members on my team and some few people that I knew already that were also climbing and we sort of teamed up to go up. But our team decided there were originally eight of us decided to wait an extra day and go about a day behind all the crowds when we went for our summit attempt. And you go up through the first three, four camps, all the way to the high camp, the South Call, which is at 26,000 feet. And when you get all the way up there, you basically get to the high camp around noon in the middle of a day and you rest all afternoon and eat and drink. And then you go and leave for the summit around eight or 10 at night. And while we were in that high camp the day, the night before and during the day, climbers had gone up. It got caught in a bunch of traffic jams near the summit because there were so many people. And that cost people the summit as late as 2 or 3 in the afternoon, which is a no-no. And those people ran out of oxygen on their descent. A lot of people passed away, and then the weather moved in. So that was the only bad thing for us waiting an extra day as we basically sacrificed good weather to try to go to the summit. And we went up on our attempt the first time and got about 800 feet from the top above the balcony, which is near the south summit, and had to turn around in 100-mile-per-hour winds. But myself and a few of my teammates, we knew that was the right call to turn around. I mean, you couldn't even hardly walk. It was blowing so hard. And as we descended, we came upon climbers that we had that had been coming down while we were going up. or so out of oxygen and out of energy. And that was really tough. I mean, I watched people die in front of me, and seven people died that night. And fortunately, our team, because we had chosen to turn around and turn around, you know, by around midnight or 1 a.m., we still had plenty of energy and knew that getting down was important. So we were able to get down safely and then eventually go back to base camp and rest and reevaluate if going back up was the right decision or not. And four of our team's eight members decided to call it quits, and the other four of us decided to go back up and give it another shot. And I remembered, you know, our training from doing the Bivvies project. So when it came to being tired to go multiple days or skipping camps on the return climb up, I knew that I physically could do it. I'd been through a lot of that adversity before, you know. Um, so I was really lucky to be able to go back up. And, of course, May 26th was the day I always remember. That's when I was able to summit, but in completely dead calm winds, calm on the summit, Sunrise came up. It was incredible to watch the sunrise over 
you know, Asia basically. And, um, really just enjoy a summit with maybe only 40 other climbers that day. So really special moment, you know? Yeah. That imagine, you know, just, just listening to you describe it. And I'm just imagining, you know, these are days of extreme highs and extreme lows. And you're talking about a hundred mile an hour winds and you're out there trying to climb. And then you're talking about watching people perish, you know, on their attempts and, um, you know, which can be tough and, and absolutely sad. And then, a couple of days later, you're able to realize your childhood dream finally and stand up at the, at the peak of, of Everest. That's amazing. Yeah. And on those trips, you learn a lot about yourself, you know, what you're capable of. And you also meet people along the way that you help out or they help you. And, and, and you know, people that I summited with, I still stay in touch with and things like that. So it's, it's really great. And um, had a chance to go back last season in 2015 but we had an earthquake so mm. nobody had to climb but it was easy to walk away from the mountain knowing that i'd already been up there right right well i was going to point that out too you had gone back in 2015 and you were at base camp when the the earthquake in nepal happened and uh many people perished down at base camp what was that like i mean it must have yeah. been complete chaos oh. obviously yeah another totally different situation just because the earthquake in some regards was the most fascinating thing i've ever experienced but then when this avalanche wall came down and wiped out part of camp and people died right in front of you, then that was like a wake-up call. You know, we dodged a bullet and our camp was safe and out of the way, fortunately, just by luck. You actually got to use some of your expertise in your line of work to, to help out the USGS during that time, right? Yeah, so, you know, after the sort of recovery efforts were done, I was down in lower villages and sort of surveying damage and doing some work for CBS and the Smithsonian. And then a former student of mine got in touch with me on email and, and knew that I was there and her boss was uh, working with USGS and they needed somebody to download some earthquake data from a couple of different sites up there that were seismographs that could track the magnitude and look at other things. And, I was able to go and download some data before it got overwritten. So it was kind of like an Indiana Jones moment, <laughs> like sitting in a tea house. And two days later, a military guy gets dropped off and hands me this key to access these sites. And he, you know, good luck. And I, but I can't give you the key unless you have a beer with me. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with this military guy from Nepal and really nice guy. And, and then, uh, yeah, and then I was able to go up and collect this data. So it was really, it was really a neat experience. That's cool. So I understand that the first summit was filmed by Dateline for a documentary. What was that all about? Yes. Yes. The, um, 2012 climb Dateline NBC contacted me after some of the things happened and said, you know, we'd like to profile your story and do you have footage? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I've worked a lot with Fox and channel two. I've done a lot of consulting in the kind of the film world. And, and I, I was like, yeah, I'd be happy to sit down with you and, you know, interview and then, you know, work together on this with footage. So they ended up uh, profiling myself and a few other climbers for our summit and kind of the story behind it. And all the footage that I provided, the documentary ended up winning the Edward R. Morrow award for best use of sound and video in 2014. I read on. That's cool. So it was a really cool award that, you know, it's, you know, kind of a special little award, but it was neat to be able, you know, have all this footage and document things. So I guess, you know, content creation, I've learned a lot about that over the last several years and you know, get to kind of work in that avenue from time to time. 
Yeah, that's an accomplishment. I thought that they had actually had crews up there filming you guys for it, but they actually they used your material. That's cool. Yeah, they used uh, you know a lot of the stuff that I filmed, and then a couple of the other folks that they had as well. So we kind of all combined it all, and they were able to get what they needed from it. And then we did a few, you know, the interview side of it in Colorado. And then we went out and even I went out and did some stuff with the, with the camera crews on just some training aspects and to get some other B roll stuff. But, but yeah, they did a really amazing job with it all. Very cool. All right. Before we move on to your second book in the cascades, I do have to ask with all the 14 ers you've done them twice now. What is your favorite one? (laughs) Well, actually, if you get technical on the 14ers side, uh, I have about almost a thousand ascents of the 14ers. <laughs> Forget twice. <laughs> yeah, and skiing, uh, you know, I mean, even today was a great example up on Mount Albert. I quite honestly lost count. Albert is one of the closest 14ers to where I live. And so it's a really easy morning to go out quick and go do a training run or cruise up the peak for training. So, some peaks I've been on as many as 25 or 30 times. Wow. And, you know, I've skied Albert probably a dozen times and they're just, you know, right in my backyard. But yeah, that being said, uh, it honestly depends on the season, but I really can't go wrong with any, any 14 er in the elk range. I mean, Capitals one of my favorites, the Maroon Bells, um, you know, that's kind of a hard question, but yeah, anything in the elk range, to be honest, um, but really, at any given time or at, with various projects, I've had really memorable moments on certain peaks, you know, and you have different types of rock in different places. So, like the Sanger de Cristos, Crestone Peak and Crestone Needle are phenomenal to rock climb in the summer. They made for really amazing ski descents with their coulars. Um, you go down to the San Juans, and they're so far away and isolated from everything. So, you get a little bit different feel there. I mean, every mountain range, the six major mountain ranges in Colorado that have 14ers kind of give you a different feel every time you're in a different place. And that's, right. what's really great about them. Yeah. It's like asking what your best day of vacation is. It's, it's still vacation. <laughs> of course. They're yeah, good. exactly. Right. <laughs> it would be like, uh, yeah. Or it'd be like if you had a couple of different girls you were dating and you could pick one, just one. But... <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> The Bearline Plus by 180 Tack is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tac.com or retailers near you. All right, so on to your your second book, book number two. Um, you decided to uh, ski and sleep on the summits of twenty of the the Cascade volcanoes up in the Pacific Northwest. So, first of all, again, how did this come about? How did this idea strike you? Uh, well, I think part of it was uh, 
like I said, I, I, I got to do my doctoral dissertation on Mount Rainier with the climbing permit system management. So I spent a few summers up on Mount Rainier and then from there discovered, you know, the ring of fire and that there's a lot of volcanoes and kind of wanted another way to add to my background and also to break into more of the ski industry and the ski side of things with projects that I do, because, you know, the skiing on the volcanoes, not a lot of people really, you know, some people ski some of the volcanoes, but there's like 60 volcanoes in the Northwest and there's about 20 of them that are above eight, eight, about 8,000 feet. And also the Northwest gets about twice as much snow as we do here in the Rockies. So the peaks get just caked with snow and covered and by, Roughly May every year, the snow conditions get such that they're really stable, and then you get that corn that you can ski. And so I just, um, after having spent the night on the top of Mount Rainier and seeing these other volcanoes from a distance, I thought, you know, there's there's a lot to explore, and why not, you know, easiest mode of travel is going to be on skis. And uh, I've been skiing since I was little, so I think I, I could do this. <laughs> and so that's kind of how the idea came about, and then um, I... Uh, kind of did the research and and had a, a whole month to go out and do as many as I could. And so I started down to Mount Shasta in southern or in northern California and just worked my way up the coast. And at times I did some solo and then other times friends joined me. And the neat thing about this book is I also had some really great contributors to the book. So not only did I have a, another appearance from Chris Tomer doing some a uh, little bit of a forward in the book, but I had uh, some quotes from John Fielder, who wrote the forward in the first book, and then some ski friends of mine, Chris Davenport and Ted Mann, who had had some time on some of the volcanoes, contributed some really neat photos of their ski experience on the peaks, too. And so I had some great contributors and sort of tied it all into one and added the stories behind it and ended up being a, a really fun month of skiing. But then I got to pull from other not only contributors, but also my past experiences on these peaks too. Cause I'd say about half of these volcanoes in the past I had climbed or skied them. So I, I went into it with some knowledge. Right. Right. You're, you're familiar. So you did 20 of these in 30 days. That's a pretty good clip, especially in the, in the winter dealing with snow. Yeah. And it was uh you know, it was another one of those crazy training ideas saying, well, this could be another good way to push my endurance stamina, prepare me for, you know, when I go back to the Himalayas, uh, things of that nature. And then the neat thing about May is, you know, most of the winter, the true winter, so now we're getting into the spring in the Northwest. In May, the days are super long. The sun comes out. The You'll get these high-pressure windows for five, six, seven days, sometimes 10 days in a row because the seasons are changing, and you can be out there, and the weather's bluebird every single day. And it's incredible and light winds on the peaks. And some of these volcanoes were lower than Colorado's mountains. So being acclimated wasn't a problem, but a lot more vertical. So there's really nothing like waking up, let's say on the top of Mount Adams in the morning um, or the top of Mount Baker and skiing seven or 8,000 vertical after you have breakfast and your legs are fresh because you spent the night on the top. Yeah. Now that's gotta be one of the, the best elements of that. You know, we all, we, we climb the 14 or we get a, a little bit of time up there when we head back down. Like I said, usually, you know, because there's a, you know, storm rolling through, at least in Colorado. Um, but to be able to spend the evening up there and wake up and have a little time on that, that summit and really be able to take it all in has got to be an amazing way to accomplish it. Yeah. And I, it was really fun to revisit some of the peaks, especially towards the end. 
and I really pushed it from the beginning was going up through California and then Oregon and Oregon had a lot of peaks that I'd never even heard of like broken top and, um, uh, Mount Thielsen, which is like this really cool looking spire. That's, uh, kind of like an old volcanic neck. And so there are some really neat surprises along the way. And then as I got up into Washington, I had climbed the five volcanoes there in the past. So then I had the knowledge of having been there. And then at the end, some friends joined me to help me complete the, the whole feat. So it was, yeah, it was really just a great tour. Yeah, absolutely. So that book number two is called Skiing and Sleeping on the Summits, Cascade Volcanoes of the Pacific Northwest. So if you guys are are interested in doing some of these uh, climbs out in the Cascades, then uh, definitely check out John's uh, book on that, as well as his, his Colorado 14ers Bivvies book. These, uh, these look to be some awesome books. I definitely have to check them out. All right, so not to divulge or make you divulge any of your secret projects, um, what is still on your bucket list? What's that that one item that you still would love to accomplish before you get too old? <laughs> um, well, I've kind of been sort of ticking off the seven summits, which is the high, highest peaks on each of the seven continents. I've done five of them, and I'd love to get down to Australia and then Antarctica at some point um, and maybe ski some in Antarctica. But I do have, uh, you know, probably the plans of this next coming year to do Kosciuszko in Australia and then the Karstens Pyramid, which is sometimes considered the seventh summit out of the Australia and Oceania. Mm -hmm. So looking to probably go do that in 2017. And then I'm uh, writing a guidebook right now to skiing in Colorado, and that'll be released next year, which is just a sort of classic ski descent book by my publisher that um, will have a lot of some hidden gems, some very well-known ski places, and also a way to get people that are more going in to start doing backcountry that it gives them some safe options. It gives them some easy-to-access options. So I'd say about 70% of the book is easy-to-access peaks and options, and then the next 30% is the more challenging and more classic ski lines on peaks all over the state, 12,000ers, 13,000-foot peaks, and then 14ers, and then even just simple destinations like Vail Pass, Loveland Pass, Berthoud Pass, um, Red Mountain Pass, and the San Juans, and, and other kind of fun options. So I'm excited about getting that book out because then I'll probably go back out and be able to retell some of the stories behind some of the skiing that I've done recently. Yeah, absolutely. When's that book going to be out, do you think? Well, we're editing it now, and it's sort of a publisher's decision as to whether they want to launch it out during the spring ski season when it might be in demand or wait till next year in the fall to get the Christmas sales. So, But it'll be next. It'll be in the calendar year 2017. Okay. Yeah, I might uh, I might bug you to come back on the show and talk backcountry skiing with us. Um, I don't know if I want to wait that long, but we can talk up the book, uh, you know, and and lead yeah, into it. Uh, but yeah, that would make for a great episode because you know it's another thing that's a, uh, you know, what an awesome hobby to be able to do in Colorado. But again, people can really get in over their heads if they're not prepared for that kind of stuff. For so for somebody to, uh, knowledgeable to come on and and have a chat about that kind of stuff could uh, really make for a good show. Yeah, it'd be fun. I'd love to do it because there's also, you know, like I said, not only are there simple road options, but, you know, a lot of people are not aware of our amazing hut system here in the state with the 10th Mountain Division huts right, and right. huts. And so there's there's so much to go out and explore and a lot of safe terrain as well that you can ski in any avalanche conditions okay. if you stay on gentle slopes and things like that. So 
But yeah, I'm getting excited about this ski season. I think we got a storm coming this week, and the outlook after you know we get into December here is going to be pretty outstanding. I think. Well, good. It's taken its time getting here, but I uh, what I understand we're supposed to have a, a pretty good winter when it finally does. So here's hoping. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, I'd love to get you back on and, and do that show with the backcountry skiing. Um, I want people to go out and check out the the two books, Sleeping on the Summits, Colorado 14er High Bivvies, and then the second book, Skiing and Sleeping on the Summits, Cascade Volcanoes of the Pacific Northwest. It's John Kodrowski. Yep, johnkodrowski.com is my website, and you can find me on there as well. Awesome. Okay, John. Well, thanks so much for giving me the time uh, to talk about your adventures. And man, I mean, I don't think we covered, you know, but the surface of what you've done. So it sounds like your alley's out there doing some cool things. So we'd definitely like to have you back on. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Travis. All right. Good deal. Thanks, John. Hey, are you a manufacturer, adventurer, author, or retail store owner and heading out to Outdoor Retailer Winter Market this year? Kurt and I will be there, and we want to meet up with you. Shoot us an email and let us know who you are. We'll be walking around, checking out the awesome adventure stuff, and looking to record some interviews. Until the next episode, get out and try something new. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.